Hi, it's Sewa jumping in with a little disclaimer before we begin today's episode. If you have any children around, I would recommend listening with earphones. While today's conversation will benefit your family, it's probably best if they hear this directly from you. When I was growing up, you still had that stigma of being called a fast girl, a promiscuous girl. And I really one time sat down and had a conversation with my aunt and my grandmother and my mother saying, well, how did you all learn about sex growing up? And how did you feel about it, about what your mother said or what your aunts were saying and how did that shape your sexual relationships? I really just had to go back and have that conversation because it was a part of my healing. Hi, Offscripters. It's your host, Sewa Ajay Pele, and welcome to episode 67 of the She's Offscript podcast. This is a show where we hear and learn from women who've created unique blueprints for success. My hope is that you'll hear their stories and translate their gems into a unique path for yourself. In today's episode, we meet Dr. Wendasha Jenkins-Hall. Dr. Wendasha is a social behavioral scientist whose research focuses on the sexual health of Black women and the underlying social reasons behind how we approach sexuality. She shares her research in a very relatable way through her platform, The Sensible Sexpert. Today, Dr. Wendasha guides us through how we as millennial women can sexually come into our own and in turn create more sex positive households of our own. A lot of sex education out there is very confusing. People don't know what's true versus what's false or fact versus myth. And I wanted to make something that is very simple, easy to access and just digestible for those who are either new to sex education or those who just really want some good resources that are honest, that are open without all the fluff. So just something that's sensible, right? Something that you could just take away and say, hey, I didn't know that, but now I know it and I understand it. Before we hear the rest of Dr. Wendasha's story, I would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes. This will help to spread the word about our podcast so amazing stories like Dr. Wendasha's can continue to inspire women looking to launch their own off-script journeys. With that, let's go off-script with the CEO of The Sensible Sexpert, Dr. Wendasha Jenkins-Hall. Dr. Wendasha Jenkins-Hall, welcome to She's Off Script. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing so well. Thank you for being here. So for anyone who hasn't heard of you or the Sensible Sexpert, could you share who you are and what you do? Okay. So that that's a lot. It's, <laughs> I do a lot of things. So I actually am a social behavioral scientist. So I do um, sexuality, sexual health research, particularly um, among Black women, girls, and femmes. And so what that consists of is really looking at the social and behavioral implications um, of our sexuality. So while we behave the way we behave, the type of um, sexual practices we engage in, and just really looking at that history behind that. But of course, with the Sensible Sex Bird, it's um, more of a education platform. So I use my platform on Instagram and on my website to really talk about those pressing sexuality-related questions that many women have. So I get questions and I answer them. I talk about a variety of different topics, just not the how to have sex, but just different topics around our um, sexuality. So that's what I do in short. How did you enter this field? And I'm particularly interested in how then this interest became a business. 
I've actually been in this field for about 16 years now. So I started when I was 16 years old. So um, I started out as a peer health educator, really talking about HIV, AIDS, education and prevention in my hometown of Tallahassee, Florida. So I was trained as a peer health educator there. And from there, my interest just really grew. I really liked that education aspect of it. And so I went on to graduate school. I led different peer health education programs. Um, I got the opportunity to do education both in the U.S., but also um, in Southern Africa. So I did a lot of work in South Africa and Zimbabwe around um, HIV-AIDS prevention there. And um, it, it just really grew from there. So I went to graduate school and a lot of my research, of course, is very scientific, of course. So writing all those papers, really looking at um, our sexual health and sexuality. But um, as far as the sensible sex part goes and making that into a business, I realized that most of the work that I'm doing is good for the academic audience. So it's good for the scientists. It's good for the other researchers. They get to read it. But the everyday person, so the everyday black woman is not necessarily reading journal articles, right? Nope. <laughs> I, I certainly am not. <laughs> yeah, so and they don't have access to that. And then plus the language in there is just really scientific. And the questions I was getting really didn't focus on my research. I was getting questions about the basis of HIV, the basis of STIs, even just different questions around sexuality. And so I was like, okay, so there's a whole audience out there that I'm missing. And I would really like to provide um, education around that, no matter how basic it is, because my research is not, re you know, really reaching that audience. So that's really how the Sensible Sexpert grew. It, would, it grew as a need to just fill that gap between what we're doing as researchers and what the public really is wanting to hear about. They don't want to hear about all the stats and things like that. They really want to hear information that is impacting their daily life. Mm. So that's really how I, I got started doing different workshops and just talking about some of everything. So from a business perspective, what was your first move? Did you first think, well, let me test out a workshop and see how it went and then decided to structure from there? Or how did you approach that? So when I first started, um, I really didn't think of it as a business, right? So um, people would ask me, hey, can you give a HIV 101 workshop? Or hey, can you give a, um, what we like to call anatomy workshop? So really talking about um, the vagina and how it is and what the parts are down there and just talk about sexual pleasure. So I really started doing workshops for free. Like it wasn't something that I thought would be a business because mm -hmm. I was, of course, doing my research full time and working with that. And so I just decided to get, um, just start doing that as I got more requests. So I was like, oh, okay. So this is something that people want and different organizations um, started contacting me to see if I can come in and just give talks and trainings. And so that's really how it grew from there. I was like, oh, I could, um, make money off of this because when you start doing it for free and you're doing it local, it's like, okay, I can just jump to a workshop that's local. I can do that. But when it started getting to the point where people wanted me to travel to different states, that's when I was like, okay, I have to monetize this in some way because I was coming out of my pocket, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> doing this. So it really just 
organically grew from there, like the sensible sex where I just started it out just to provide information. But it just started growing as more and more people started asking for content. So yeah, I really did not start this to really be a business. That was not at the forefront of my mind. <laughs> so how important has branding been for you? Because this is often a taboo topic for people and they don't necessarily want to talk about it as publicly as you do. So why the choice to name your brand the sensible sexpert and how has that helped? Branding is really important, but especially in the field of sexuality and sexual health, you have to be very careful because when people think about sex education, a lot of things come to mind, right? Mm -hmm. so, and then if you look on the internet and you <laughs> research sex education, it, it's a wide variety of things out there. So um, when I first started out, I really wasn't even thinking about branding. I was just putting information out there. I had a few followers, but then I realized that because there are just so many different avenues of sex education, and I knew I wanted to really focus on Black women, Black femmes, and then I knew that I was coming at it from an aspect of being a trained researcher in public health, not necessarily saying that you that's how you have to go about doing sexual health, but that was just my avenue, knowing that I had, you know, reputable resources, knowing how I could connect with the audience. So I had to start branding myself like that because I don't offer certain classes. Like you have some people who offer oral sex classes, which is fine, um, different sexual technique classes, and that's fine because that's a form of sex education also. But I knew that that's not the route I wanted to go because I straddle two different worlds as far as research and education goes. Mm -hmm. So when I started branding myself, I said, what do I want to be known as, right? A lot of sex education out there, a lot of things out there is very confusing. People don't know what's true versus what's false or fact versus myth. And I wanted to make something that is very simple, easy to access and just digestible for those who are either new to sex education are those who just really want some good resources that are honest, that are open, um, without all the fluff. So mm -hmm. something that's sensible, right? Something that you could just take away and say, hey, I didn't know that, but now I know it and I understand it. You know, so that's really where the sensible sex part came from, because I see myself as really being, you know, straightforward, honest, something that's easy, simple to digest. So that's how I... Um, came up with the with the sensible sex bird. And I was just playing around with it and it just um, stuck. So it works, it works. And I think you do a good job of conveying everything you intended to convey as far as being straightforward, not coming across as, for lack of a better word, grimy, because a lot of the things you see online, you're just like, oh, let me click off this page. I didn't mean to get on here, right? So I appreciate coming across a Black woman who is sharing about sexual health in such a relatable way, because as I mentioned earlier, this has been a taboo area for a yeah. lot of us growing up. Other than you know learning a little bit about your business, the main reason I wanted to have you on is because I loved the way you approached sex positivity mm -hmm. as a whole. And I think this is something that a lot of us in our community are lacking. I actually did a poll of some, a few of my girlfriends to understand what their background with sex positivity has been. And for a lot of us, 
it hasn't been the healthiest. And when we talk about going off script with our lifestyles, Mm -hmm. this is probably one area that we could stand to gain some resources in. I think off the bat, let's go ahead and define a few terms. So what does it mean to be a sex positive parent? What does it mean to be a sex positive parent? So when I look at sex positive parenting, I look at a form of parenting that is shameless and fearless. And what I mean by that is, I'm sorry, you probably hear my daughter in the background going crazy. Uh, <laughs> we are all social distancing, so it's going to come with the territory. <laughs> um, so really sex positive parenting is really being open with your children, really being honest with your children about topics that involve sex and sexual health. And what I mean by that, I'm not saying that you expose your children to any and everything when it comes to sex, because there are um, age appropriate ways or age appropriate discussions to be having. But it just really means not having shame around sex and sexuality. And when they come to you with a question, being honest. And if you don't know the answer, being able to go out and find the resources to make sure that they have the information that they need. And sex positive doesn't necessarily mean that, like I said, you just have sex all around the house and things like that. But even if something is simple, when the children are young, starting out saying, okay, these are your body parts and not being shamed around naming body parts, just like you name an arm or a leg or fingers. You say, okay, this is your vulva. This is your um, a penis. And not really having any shame around that, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's just the body part. And so do you mean not giving nicknames to, you know, yes, calling things your pocketbook and yeah, not giving <laughs> no, not giving nicknames. So your pocketbook, your purse, your cookie, um, or your wee wee or whatever right. we, mm-hmm. we tell kids, but just really saying that these are the body parts. Mm-hmm. Because kids at that age really don't have no shame. We don't they don't have shame around it. If you tell mm-hmm. them, they say, okay, that's what it is. We're the ones who introduce shame into our children, right? Mm-hmm. So if, they, if we find them by like, exploring themselves, because that's what children do. They're going to see their bodies. They're like, oh, what is this? And if we say, no, don't touch that, or oh, that's nasty. Mm-hmm. That's how we start introducing shame um, to our children. So when you say we're the ones that introduce it to our kids, I want to touch on the fact that for Many of us millennial parents Mm -hmm. who are raising young kids, we ourselves didn't grow up in sex positive households. Mm -hmm. So we still struggle with our own sexuality and we're still getting a level of comfort for ourselves. Yes. And then now are being faced with what do we share with our kids? I would say let's take a step back and talk about women today, millennial women. How do you think we can start to work towards getting a level of comfort with our own sexuality? Yes, yes. And and I will say, even as millennial women, starting with naming body parts, because a lot of times we as grown women don't even say vagina or we don't even say vulva or breast or penis. Like that's not even a part of our normal vocabulary. We still Mm kind of are taken aback by, oh, we, we just don't say it. And the only times we really do discuss it is when we go to our doctors and we may have a problem, right? Mm -hmm. But just really getting comfortable with saying those words. Also getting comfortable with looking at our own bodies. Um, 
I have spoken to women and a lot of times they say they don't even really look at themselves in the mirror naked because mm. there's just that discomfort of just looking at your body and how it actually is. Um, a lot of times our partners know our bodies better than we do, especially how they look because we really just don't look at our bodies. We, we really don't touch ourselves um, a lot of times how I think we should be touching ourselves and exploring ourselves. So really starting from that basic groundwork, right? And just really exploring what our bodies look like, right? Just really getting comfortable with using the terms or the correct terms for our bodies, especially not just using the pet names all the time, but you can do with your partner, right? You can, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes you don't want to be clinical in the bedroom, but <laughs> just really looking at that and then sitting down and being honest with ourselves. And I do recommend journaling. So mm -hmm. asking yourself, who am I sexually at this point in my life? Who am I sexually? And what feels good to me sexually? And what makes me feel uncomfortable? Because we, we don't have those conversations, right? We just go through our lives. We know that, that there's an element of shame, but we never really ask ourselves, why do we feel the way we feel? Mm. How do we currently feel about our sexuality? Are there things that I like to explore, but I'm nervous or scared about? And why am I nervous or scared about it? So really having those conversations with ourselves, I always say journaling is great because it really helps you get thoughts out of your head and you can go back and read and reflect on it. Um, some um, women go to therapy, especially if they really just ha have hangups around their sexuality, which is always great. I always recommend therapy. Mm -hmm. um, to really help us unpack, especially if there's a lot of sexual trauma um, that has been experienced. So it's really a learning process and a relearning process about ourselves and really trying to, you know, we ha we've been conditioned to think a certain way. So really trying to reprogram ourselves mm -hmm. when it comes to our own sexuality. So it's a lot of work. It's a lot of internal work. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. And once you've been able to pinpoint, this is why I feel the way I do, mm -hmm. to share for myself personally, I was raised in the church and I was raised by parents who were very matter of fact. Along with that was probably not a lot of specific these are some of the things from a sexual perspective you need to know. There was a lot of sharing through parables. And I, I thought it was very interesting that you said you had, you had spent some time in Southern Africa because I spent some time in Southern Africa growing up at the height of the AIDS epidemic, right? Mm -hmm. Where nine out of 10 people in Swaziland, which is kind of close mm -hmm. to South Africa where you were, nine out of 10 people at a certain point were HIV positive. Uh -huh. So just think about using that as a teaching moment for your young child. Like so-and-so was promiscuous. They went and had sex. They got AIDS. They're dead. Take from that what you will, right? So that's yeah. kind of, <laughs> that's kind of the, the kind of conversation I had growing up. Um, and so to some extent, I think my parents were openly sharing what they were encountering and yeah. we took from that. So that was positive, but there were no direct conversations with us kids. Given that some of us have come from backgrounds like that, how else would you encourage us to then get over that hurdle? Mm -hmm. So like I said, it's, it takes time, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
And I think what's really forcing us to do this now as millennial parents, because sex is everywhere, right? So mm. we're now um, encountering sex positivity that is totally different from how many of us were raised, right? And so I, what I had to do, I would say that my mom was pretty sex positive um, considering when I was growing up, right? But one thing I did have to have with my mom, I had to really sit down and have a conversation with her, mm. right? And because she knows what I do, she's very excited about what I'm, <laughs> she knows what I do, and she's very excited about it. But really talking to her about how I felt um, growing up when it came to sex and sexuality and the different conversations that were had around that, mm. and how that really influenced how I started to see sexual relationships um, growing up. And I kind of broke out of it like early because sex was a really a big interest of mine when I was early, but also, um, but when I was growing up, you still had that stigma of being called a fast girl, a promiscuous mm. girl. And I really one time sat down and had a conversation with my aunt and my grandmother and my mother saying, well, how did you all learn about sex growing up? And, you know, how did you feel about it, about what your mother said or what your aunts were saying and how did that shape your sexual relationships? So that was a way that I did. I really just had to go back and have that conversation because it was a part of my healing. Mm -hmm. um, Were they receptive to having that conversation with you? You know, they were because they know what I do. Mm. (laughs) So they were, um, but I also think it's just your approach. Um, It doesn't have to be like a a gathering. Say, let's sit down and talk about sex with your (laughs) aunts and grandmothers, (laughs) but just really having those conversations about relationships and about Mm. relationships with men. I've, from what I realized, they are very open to having conversations about their relationships that they had in the past with men and just really digging deep into how they came into their own sexually and how they were taught and how they feel about men and how men felt about them. So that was a really important piece of my healing and understanding. So it let me um, really get to know them more like intimately and really understand that what I was taught was not them trying to um, limit me, but it was more so a cautionary tale. Like, we don't want you to go through what we went through. So we mm-hmm. did the best we could, right? So if that's not possible for a lot of people to have those conversations, it really is, we have to get to a point that we have to forgive our parents for what they did because they were doing the best that they could with the information they had at mm-hmm. the time. And we have to consider how they were raised. And once we can get to that point of acceptance, then we can start to really move forward and think about, okay, so that's how we were raised, but how do we want to be, right? Who do we want to be sexually? Um, Who are we currently sexually? And how can we then ensure that our children don't experience that same same shame? Mm. And I'm a big advocate for um, sister um, sister circles. So really getting around our friends and really discussing those things and just really trying to come to an understanding and bring healing in those, in those spaces. So that like, there's, like I said, it's a lot of work to do, but I think it's important because we're not alone in this, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like even though we as black women, we're not monolithic, we're not all the same, but we still share um, a lot of background. We still share a lot of similarities when it comes to um, our sex and sexuality and how we've been um, told to view it. Right. Mm -hmm. So 
Like it's, it's no simple answer, right? It's, it's no, no, it isn't. But these are ideas that we can all feel out and see if they would work for us. So I appreciate you sharing that. But as you talk about making that transition into who we want to be mm-hmm. as women and then thinking about who we want to be as parents, now that a lot of us have young ones at home, what's the appropriate way to start having those sex positive types of conversations with our kids along the way? Because I have toddlers, so four and six year old, who ask different questions than maybe a teenager would ask. So how do we start to broach those conversations? Yes. So like I said, it is something that you have to do something that's age appropriate for each group, right? Mm-hmm. So when we're thinking about like toddlers, because I myself have a <laughs> have a toddler, when they ask questions, be as open and honest as possible in an age appropriate way. So kids at two, three, four, five, six, at that point, most of them they don't have a concept of sex, right? Mm-hmm. So um, our, we as parents, we tend to project on them, but they don't really have a concept of sex, and they're just asking out of curiosity. And more often than not, it's about their bodies, right? Um, so I have a child who um, was breastfed for like 14, 15 months. Mm-hmm. So as she got older and she saw pictures, she was like, okay, what was I doing? Or she see other women in public asking those questions. And I would say, okay, well, um, she is breastfeeding, right? And then just explain to her, explain to your child what that means, right? So not sexualizing breasts, but saying, okay, the baby is eating, they're getting their nutrients in order to stay healthy. Mm -hmm. Different from you. So you're eating solid foods, the baby is drinking breast milk, right? So they're not looking at it in a sexual way, but they know, okay, um, those are breasts and they can be used for feeding. Right. And as they get older, they'll notice that they have a penis or they have a vagina. And so my daughter's like, okay, what's that? Mm-hmm. And so I would tell her, okay, that's your vulva. And inside your vulva is your vagina. And she was like, okay. And, <laughs> and matter so, of fact, yep. yeah, matter of fact, like, and she's like, okay, yeah, I, I clean my vagina. Now, that's what she, so she looks at it as though it's just a regular body part. And of course, as she gets older, as they go to like pre-K or preschool, um, Kids tend to get changed and use the bathroom in front of each other. Mm-hmm. So she would be like, okay, um, boys have something different. What is that? And then I was like, okay, they have a penis. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay. So boys have penis, girls have vagina. Like that's how she, you know, started to learn, but it was nothing sexual to say mm-hmm. the least. It was nothing like that. But of course, as they get older, you start introducing good touch, bad touch. Right. So telling them that, yes, you know, these body parts, but there are not, you know, there are times where no one should be touching you. Right. So um, anything that's covered by your underwear or your panties, nobody should touch that. Nobody should touch your chest and things like that. So that's how really we start those sex positive conversations, just getting them comfortable with their bodies. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, with my daughter, she's seen me undressed before. So she may have questions. So many questions. Yeah. So many questions. And and the questions are so full of shade sometimes. You're just like, once my daughter asks me, why does that breast look droopy? I'm like, because that was your favorite breast and you sucked the life out of it. That's why. <laughs> oh, yes. And, so, and that's what it is. And so especially like, so yeah, they ask those questions and you just answer them. 
and they yep. just go about their day. Mm-hmm. And then those conversations just tend to shift as they get a little older. So when they start moving into eight, nine, ten, you start to have that discussion with them about puberty mm-hmm. because their bodies are going to start changing, right? So you have um, get them ready for periods, right? Even before that. What happens when before puberty, there starts to be interest in the opposite sex? I think then you start to get a little bit. That's where the discomfort starts for a lot of people, because already they were told absolutely not. Do not even engage with the opposite sex. Danger, danger. Now you're trying to do better and your kid is starting to say, oh, I think that little boy is cute and she's seven or eight. So what do you do in that case? So that they're just experiencing attraction, which because mm. I tell people all the time, we are born sexual beings. We don't become sexual once we get to like our teenage years. So that's okay, you know. So you just tell them, all right, you um you like that little boy, you think they're cute, but still put some boundaries around that. You know, seven or eight years old, you say, okay, we're not going to be kissing right now because pre-K and kindergartners kiss that's what they do they have they engage in what we call sex play they do explore each other's bodies because they look different but you put boundaries around that right my jaw just hit the ground what (laughs) kindergartners yeah because so think about it if um they're in a two-parent household or whatnot and they see their parents kiss they will probably try to mimic that. Mm, playing house. Okay. Yeah, playing house mm-hmm. and things like that. And so you just put boundaries and say, no, you don't, you know, you don't kiss. Um, you, cause I had that situation with my daughter where her and a little boy and um, her were like pre-K, they, they kissed. Mm-hmm. And everybody was like, oh my God, what in the world? These little girls are fast. No, it, it was not that. It was just that she saw that me and my husband had kissed. Mm-hmm. And I kissed her. And then I just tell her, hey, um, with your friends, you do not kiss. You can shake hands. You can do a fist bump. You can do a high five. And if they, um, if you have their permission, then you can do a hug. But we're not going to kiss. You, mm-hmm. just don't, you, you just don't, you know, kiss your friends. And she was like, okay. And that was it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so as they get older, they're going to start noticing the opposite sex. They're going to have their little crushes. But still, at that time, it's not sexual like we think. It's not like they think that little boy is cute. Oh, I want to now begin a sexual relationship with them. No, that's not the case. But but for some kids, it depends on also the environment that they've grown up in and what they've Mm. been exposed to. So that's a whole different set of, um, that's a whole different question of the whole episode. But a lot of times, kids have probably heard the word sex are... Um, really have just seen something sexual related by the time they're in like fourth grade, right? So just being open and letting your kids ask those questions is really what is important. I'm not saying that you should sit your kids down in third grade and say, have you ever heard of sex? Like, no, but being open that if they were to come and say, hey, I heard this at school today, because a lot of times we, we can't control what our kids are going to hear mm-hmm. because kids are exposed to different things but if they feel comfortable coming to you saying i heard this what does this mean just being ready for those age appropriate conversations mm. so cuz you definitely cannot control it my daughter comes home and she talks about things that i'm just like we didn't talk about that at home yeah. where did you hear this so yeah. better that you 
somewhat preempt that so that they don't yes. get something wildly distorted from out there. Yes, yes, because that's if we don't talk about it in our homes, they're going to listen to their friends. They're going to turn to those sources of information, no matter how incorrect they may be. Mm-hmm. But even in speaking of attraction and going into that pre-adolescence or those preteen years on into those preteen years, that's when um, those urges or desires for sex tend to emerge. Mm. And that, but that's just biology, right? That's that's our bodies doing what they're supposed to do. We're starting to come into being sexually mature individuals. Now, growing up in the church, you would say, oh, those are, that's, that's Satan trying to tempt you. Right. Like that, like you need to pray. But no, that's, that's really um, our hormones, right? They are, we're coming into our own. We're starting to see who we're sexually attracted to, right? So periods are starting to begin. Um, young boys are, they're starting to, you know, mature. They start to have their, you know, their wet dreams and things like that. So we have to be there for our kids and really start having those conversations about sex. So you definitely, I would say before puberty really begins, you can start introducing those conversations about sex because. Okay. So that is, a lot of us are probably there now or about to be there. And as someone who loves to prepare, maybe, maybe now we could do like a little role play. What do I say to a pre-pubescent or pre-adolescent what do I talk to them about when I'm having the sex talk? You know, knowing that the sex talk is not just a one-time thing, just like we've been yeah. talking about. Yeah. yeah. So I think it starts off, well, it's so funny because a lot of us have the sex talk a little bit earlier than others, especially if we have a child that's a certain age and then we get pregnant and they ask that, where do babies come from? Question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that's when we're first hit with it. Like, oh, now we have to have a talk. So really just under like asking the question, if that hasn't come up already, hey, do you know where babies come from, right? And so if they say no, then you can really just start that age appropriate question. I mean, age appropriate answer, okay, when mommy and daddy or whoever, when they come together, like you have to really do it like that and just explain to them in the most basic terms of what happens, that babies don't come by storks, they're not put on our doorstep <laughs> that you know some, mm. some people do tell their kids that and so kids are like my baby brother or baby sister's gonna come delivered to me by uber eats yes. oh come on <laughs> so really talking to them and the reason why we do that is because we understand that as their bodies grow i always say started with that body discussion so as you get older this is what is going to happen to your body you're going to start going through puberty right and if you're a female, this is what this means. You will start to have a menstrual cycle and you really discuss what the menstrual cycle is and break it down to them. And then when you break it down to them, say, okay, so this means that your body is capable of having a baby, right? Mm. Most kids are going to be like, I don't want to have a baby. Like they'll get, <laughs> so they'll have that discussion, but then you tell them the process of pregnancy and how that happens. And so they will really know, they will start to know, okay, so this is how babies are made, right? Like, I know that it may be uncomfortable with people saying sex and things like that, because kids will quite naturally ask you, so you and daddy had sex, like, (laughs) Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, like, so you do talk to them about that, but then also say that at this age, 
that's not appropriate behavior for you to engage in. That is something that you wait until you're a little older, right? And then start to have those discussions and really continue to have those discussions with them so they know how babies are made. But when you start going into to those adolescent years, it's the feelings and the attractions that you now have to start talking about because they're going to feel that they're going to get that urge, right? Right. So, and so this is where a lot of us maybe had the fear-based approach of yeah. <laughs> don't do this or you'll get an STD, you'll get pregnant, yeah. da, 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 right? Because the right tools weren't available. So yeah. how do you broach the... Now that I'm having feelings and I'm interested in engaging with the opposite sex, mm-hmm. how do you put some boundaries around that for them? Because regardless, teenagers are going to want to explore. So yes. I also don't want to be the parent that says, don't do it until the night of your wedding. Is that realistic in today's yes. society? So to answer that question really quickly, mm-hmm. most Americans tend to have sex around 16, 17 years old. Really? So yeah, so they tend to have their first sexual experience around that time. Now that's not to say some have them younger as we know, or some have them older, you know? Mm -hmm. But that 16, 17 um, age range is when we tend to start experimenting with sex. Mm. And so really understanding that, okay, they're experiencing attractions. They have these urges to sit down and talk about, okay, so you like such and such. So tell me a little bit more about that. Like, what do you like about them? Um, what type of feelings do you have toward them? But also explaining to your child at this point, the emotional side of sex. Because a lot of times we tend to forget that. We think, okay, yeah, we need to tell them about pregnancy. We need to tell them about STIs. But that does not stop kids from having sex. Even though they know nope. <laughs> about pregnancy, even though they know about STIs, a lot of times they're drawn by their feelings and their emotions to do things, right? Mm. So telling them, okay, what is a healthy relationship, right? What is not a healthy relationship? Do you feel the need or the want to have sex with this person because you're pressured? Do you feel that you have to have sex with this person to show that you like them or that you love them, right? So what are some alternatives to showing um, someone that you like them or love them, right? So those are conversations that are really important to have because no matter what we say about pregnancy and STIs, um, which is true, you know, they, we need to talk about them because that 15 to 25 age group is really what makes up most of our STI cases in the nation, mm. right? But at the end of the day, we really have to admit that most often than not, and most times you have sex, it doesn't result in pregnancy. Like that's, that's just true, right? You have mm-hmm. to have sex at a certain period of time and teenagers tend to get pregnant because they don't know about those, you know, ovulation cycles and things like that. But we have to understand that they want to have sex and sex feels good and people engage in sex to show love. However, we have to talk to them about the emotional side of it, right? That, okay, if you're engaging in sex, if this is something that you feel like you're responsible enough to do, let's talk about why do you feel that way, right? Mm -hmm. Are you truly ready to have sex? And if you feel that you're ready to have sex, what would you do? in the incidence of there was a pregnancy scare or if you were to get an STI or do you know how to protect yourself from those things? Like, so do you know about condoms? Do you know how to properly use a condom? Do so this want- is a conversation you're having with a 15 year old. Yes. 14 year old, 13 year old. Cause you'll be surprised. Like 
of the conversations about sex in middle school, right? No, when I was in middle school, there was a 14-year-old girl who did get pregnant. Yes. And of course I came home and I shared that with my parents, but I think, I don't, I don't know what went through their mind, but that still did not introduce the conversation. <laughs> yes. When I was in middle school, there was a 12 year old girl who was pregnant. Oh, wow. Right? So at that point you had no choice, but to discuss it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> at 12, it's like you're what, sixth grade or seventh grade. It's like, okay, so what is really going on here? And if the school is not providing any type of sex education, um, which a lot of schools aren't, it's very confusing, right? Mm. About how this is happening, what happened. You know, of course, we would never know if there was any sexual assault around that issue. But to let 12-year-olds know that, hey, if you're menstruating, um, this this could happen if you were to engage in certain things. But I mm-hmm. will say we should never try to use a scare tactic. We should yeah. never try to instill that fear in them because what can happen is We'll tell our teenagers or we'll tell our children, no, don't have sex. You can get pregnant. You can get an STI, but then they have sex and that does not happen. Yeah. So then they don't believe you anymore. Right. So then it's like, well, credibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay, well, I, I did it this one time. Okay. I did it again. It didn't happen. Right. So we really just have to give them the tools to protect themselves. And when kids are informed about sex and we don't scare them about it, we let them know, okay, yeah, STIs exist. Yes, um, unattended pregnancy does exist. Um, There are situations where you can have sex with a person and y'all break up and then those things can happen too. Um, This is how you go about being sexually responsible. Also teaching them about consent because some teenagers are pressured Mm. into having sex even though they don't necessarily want to and letting them know that it's okay to not have sex that they tend to delay having sex if they are informed and they have information they tend to delay it right Mm. but we don't give them that information where they're trying to go out and figure things out on their own because um, a lot of people don't know that the teenage pregnancy rates are actually going down they are they're dropping that's good yeah, so, but that's because of education. We're educating our kids. They're um, really starting to understand, you know, what sex means, how to protect themselves, what to do, what not to do. It's just really having that conversation. But I think many of us feel that when we talk about that, we're encouraging it. Like, And so, that's what, that was my next question is how, what would you say to that parent who feels like, hey, if I'm exposing them to this information so early, I'm going to enable them. Yeah. You're, you're actually not, you're just giving them the information. You're giving them the tools to make informed decisions, mm-hmm. right? So that's what we're doing as parents. That's what we do. We try to give our children the information that they need. So when they grow up, they're making informed decisions. So we give them allowances, right? We try to teach them about money management. So mm-hmm. this allowance and you save it, it can build on and we give you a savings account and we're teaching you how to manage that. But if we just give them money and say, do what you will with it, then they're going to go out and spend frivolously and don't understand how money works. Right. Mm-hmm. Or we let them get jobs when they get older so they can have a sense of responsibility or chores so that they know how to take care of a house. Right. Mm-hmm. So we have to think the same way about sex. We, we just have to. And even in, like I said, talking about sex, 
we tend to focus on what can happen to the body, like pregnancy and STIs, but we should be teaching our children healthy relationships, really how to engage in a healthy relationship because relationships are about a lot more than sex, right? Mm -hmm. So how should these interactions be? How should I be treated in a relationship? Mm -hmm. What is abuse in a relationship? Um, what signs should I be looking out for? How this person should be treating me? Those are things that we also need to be having conversations about. Absolutely. And so for any parents who feel like, oh, I probably haven't done the best job, how would you encourage them to walk back some of the fear tactics that they've already started to instill or the shame that maybe they've started to instill already? So I would say also that that, that, that question is too far because it depends on the age of the child. Mm. So if they're still in that preteen, you know, that late elementary school, middle school, it's easier to start just having those conversations, especially if you put those threat tactics out there and say, I know I said this about sex or about pregnancy or STIs, but I just really want to have just an honest conversation with you. If you have any questions that you would like to ask me, I'm here. And really try to relate to your kids on a level because you were once 12, 13, 14 yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Though our kids don't feel that we were ever young. Like <laughs> They feel like we were just, put on this earth as 30 as adults yeah. <laughs> just let them know okay what your experience was during that age what type of feelings that you had and if the if you feel comfortable like I said it's baby steps you can start talking to your kids about the first time that you considered having sex right and how old you were when you had sex and you know the things that came with that, so if you had sex for the first time at 17, like, oh, I understand, you know, your feelings. I had sex at this time, and this is what it meant for me. And I would like you to wait because of whatever situations happen. Mm -hmm. Or if you have a child that has already engaged in sex, to not make them feel shame, to not um, talk about them, just to say, okay, I understand that this is something you already engaged in, but we really need to talk about protecting yourself. Mm -hmm. You really need to talk about birth control options or contraception options, or even talk about, you know, after that experience, if they feel comfortable, like, how do you feel? Mm -hmm. How, how are you and the person now engaging, right? Um, is this something that you feel like you should have done or if there are, could you have done something differently? Because sometimes, like I said, kids have sex and afterwards they're confused about it sometimes, right? Mm. And they just don't understand the experience. So really just being that person that they can come to and not fear that, okay, I'm gonna get on punishment or my parents are going to kill me or you know, we just have to just model that behave, behavior for them. Mm -hmm. And so it really, like I said, just stepping back and saying, okay, as a parent, asking yourself, what is my fear around my child having sex? Am I fearing that they'll get an SDI? Am I fearing that if I have young girls that I'm going to be a grandma mm -hmm. and I don't want them to go through that? They need to consider their futures. You can have all those conversations, but you just don't have to wrap it up in fear. Mm -hmm. You can wrap it up in concern. You can say, I'm here for you. Um, don't try to just push whatever your agenda is on them. Because like I said, at the end of the day, when they get to a certain age, they're going to end up doing what they want to do. Mm -hmm. Just hope that you've given them the tools 
that they need to make informed decisions. Wow, that's a lot of information. This is another one of those episodes where I probably will have to make some notes after the fact. But now for anyone whose interest has been piqued, both on the side of women trying to figure out how to come into their own fully sexually and on the parenting side, where can we look for more resources? Okay, there are a lot of resources out there. Um, I will say for one, especially when it comes to sex positive parenting, um, on Instagram, look up sex positive parenting um, or sex positive families with um, Melissa Carnegie. That's her whole platform. She teaches parents how to go about being sex positive. She even she has like lots of online resources, books that can be read and really share um, how to have these conversations about mm. sex. I feel like she's like the number one resource and she is a woman of color. So she understands um, everything (laughs) when it comes to, I feel like she is just the superstar when it comes to, I've learned a lot from Melissa. I interact a lot with her. She's great. Um, And as a woman, if you're trying to come into your own, I think it just depends on where you are (laughs) in your journey. So of course I provide um, resources. I also do one-on-one um, consults and talks with women about different issues um, that they may have. There are a lot of um, sex educators out there. One is Axe Goody. A lot of these people are on Instagram. So I'm okay. just name their Instagram handles Goody Howard, Axe Goody, sexologist Shamira, Shamira Howard. She is very great. She is a sex therapist and she deals with a lot of issues around sex and sexuality, especially intimacy also with your partner. Um, Dr. Donna Oreo, um, Oreo, she is a nod, right? That's her, um, that's her platform. She provides a lot of sexual health and well-being. So it's a lot of of resources out there. Also therapy for black girls, Mm -hmm. therapy for black girls, Dr. Joy. Dr. Joy. Mm-hmm. Yes. So on her page, there are a list of therapists and counselors that um, that you can call up and work with. So there, there are a lot of resources out there. It just depends on um, what you're looking for. So if you're more so on the education side, there are people who are there, people who will need more of the therapy and counseling. You have those there. So it's, it's just a lot out there. We, I think now it's, it's a lot more now than there were in the past. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. So in the past, we really just had to kind of Google and kind of piecemeal. But now we have people out there who really are providing the support in the services. So, well, yeah. thank God for women like you <laughs> who are willing to get educated and then package it up in a way that's easy for us to digest. I'm really thankful for your platform and and for you as well. No problem. No problem. I don't think we shared your handle. So anyone who wants to get in touch with you and follow you, where can they reach out to you? So um, you can reach out to me on Instagram at the sensible sexpert. And that's just one, the sensible sexpert. Um, And then my website, the sensible sexpert.com where you can go in there, get a lot more information about me, about workshops I offer. Also, if you would like to book a one-on-one um, session, that'd be um, an option there too. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on today. No problem. No problem. Hi, Offscripters. I'm so glad you made it to the end of this episode. If you enjoy listening to our show, please pay it forward by sharing us with your network. Between episodes, you can find me on Instagram. Our handle is at She's Offscript, or you can catch up on past episodes at She's Offscript.com. See you on the next one.